Welcome to the latest episode of the IIF Global Regulatory Update Podcast. I'm Martin Boer, Senior Director of Regulatory Affairs at the Institute of International Finance in Washington, D.C. Today, I am delighted to be joined by my friend Simon Gleason, who specializes in banking and financial markets law and regulation, clearing, settlement, and derivatives at Clifford Chance in London. Simon also chairs the IIF's Cross-Border Resolution Working Group and advises governments, regulators, and public bodies, as well as banks, investment firms, fund managers, and other financial institutions on a wide range of regulatory issues. Given the recent banking turmoil on both sides of the Atlantic, we thought it would be a great opportunity to talk to Simon about bank resolution and crisis management topics. So, Simon, it's great to see you, to hear your voice, and thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Well, Martin, it's great to be here. I mean, it's been interesting. The IIF has been in the lead on bank resolution for a very long time now. You know, you and I have spent years telling people, you know what, this could happen again. So in some respects, it's been interesting that it did. Excellent. Well, why don't we start with what's happened the last couple of months? Because as you say, you know, people were worried about these things, but it's been relatively calm since the financial crisis when it comes to resolution, mm-hmm. at least in practice. So over the last couple of months, we've seen turmoil in California, New York, and in Zurich. In a span of just a few weeks, we saw the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, Signature, Credit Suisse, and First Republic. There were different reasons, of course, for these failures, Simon, although concentrated business models, poor interest rate risk management, and a high level of reliance on uninsured deposits seem to be common themes. I would be keen to hear how you viewed the responses on both sides of the Atlantic to these failures. Well, it's been interesting, hasn't it? I must say, to my mind, the most important thing was the relative lack of panic. The banks and the authorities have spent 10 years now thinking about how you deal with bank resolution. And in many respects, the most important thing was that both from the authorities and to some extent from you know the media and the commentariat was the absence of people running around shrieking and an acceptance of the fact that, you know what, it's happened, we better do something about it. And in many respects, that is the big and important thing, because as many of us have been saying for a very long time now, if we want the banking industry to be a normal industry, one of the things that has to be able to happen is for participants in that industry to fail and be restructured without this triggering a sort of chicken little response. And I thought it was really, really important that that didn't happen. And I'm pretty convinced that the explanation for that is precisely this planning process. And it's the old cliche that plans are useless, but planning is invaluable. Nobody triggered any of their plans. But the fact that a lot of people had spent a lot of time thinking about it, to my mind, was the thing that was how we got out of this with a relatively clean skin. You're right, Simon. And if we start um, in the US, where the Treasury, the Federal Reserve, and the FDIC um, Mm -hmm. announced that all depositors would be made whole, and then helped SVB, Signature, and First Republic be acquired by other banks, did US supervisors and regulators act as you would have expected them to? It was interesting, because the crisis was exactly the reverse of what they'd been planning for. What people thought they'd learned from the last crisis 
was that cash outflows happened in the wholesale market. You know, previously what we had was a collateral one. And there was this idea that deposits, and particularly corporate deposits that were connected to the provision of payment services, were the most stable form of funding there was. So when that started running, you could see that the authorities were going, hang on, (laughs) our playbook just stopped working. But the response, which was to say, okay, it's a bank run, it's a different sort of bank run, let's create some different tools to address that bank run, was, it was absolutely the right thing to do. And we have always known, as I think the other big thing, that no matter how much time and effort we have all put into planning resolution, resolution is the worst possible outcome. Some sort of solvent transfer to a willing buyer is almost always going to be better for customers, for the economy, for everyone than sort of court-administered or regulatory-administered process. And so there's no surprise that that was perceived to be the desired outcome. But it was, I thought, quite encouraging that we had a problem that absolutely wasn't anticipated. And there was a great deal of creativity about creating new solutions, specifically the extension of deposit protection, to deal with those. And again, I think really important that we didn't have politicians and commentators jumping up and down saying, you know, this is terrible, this is dreadful, this is the commitment of taxpayers' money to bail out private greed and all the rest of it. So it it, it worked pretty well, I thought. (laughs) So on depositor protection, Simon, it's quite high here in Mm. the US, right? At $250,000 if you look at other jurisdictions. So it was noteworthy that the US authorities made use of this system risk exception to cover all depositors, even beyond 250000 So mm. I was just wondering, do you think that deposit insurance caps will now be reconsidered? And, and what about the moral hazard issue where, where depositors and even some banks could undertake riskier behavior thinking they're going to be bailed out mm. by insurance deposit caps? Well, I thought it was interesting because what was actually going on there was the US was taking a leaf out of the UK's book because this is exactly what the UK did with RBS last time round. Um, The real issue here is that the vast majority of the commercial deposits that banks hold are not placed with the bank as a credit investment. They're put there in order to get access to the payment system, because in order to make payments through the payment system, you have to have a money deposit with a bank. And to that extent, it's actually perfectly rational to guarantee those sort of payment deposits, because that's what makes the economy go round. The problem, though, exactly as you say, is if you guarantee sort of credit investments, all you're doing is giving an unjustified windfall to those investors. But the real difficulty, and I think this is this is going to be the policy challenge going forward, it will become increasingly clear to the authorities that there's absolutely nothing wrong with guaranteeing payment deposits in an emergency. But it's a it, it, it's a really bad thing to effectively cover credit investments in an emergency. But writing a rule of recognition that distinguishes between those two is pretty hard. I mean, at a first approximation, you could say, well, I'll tell you what, we're going to guarantee non-interest bearing deposits, which 
payment deposits traditionally are, but we're not going to guarantee interest-bearing deposits. You could do it that way, but even then, you've got a potential difficulty um, with um, are you doing unpredicted damage. So, I mean, I, I think the, the notion of extending depositor protection in a crisis is an approach with a respectable history. And no matter how economically impure it may be, we kind of know it works. But how you write that going forward, I think, is going to be a substantial policy challenge. Yeah, there might also be challenges about retail versus wholesale or retail versus mm. companies trying to make payroll and, and households might not need that much liquidity. But of course, small and medium businesses do, right? Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I mean, the, the, the days when people, companies certainly regularly held their surplus cash just in a bank deposit account, I think disappeared some time ago. But the further you go down the scale, the more likely we know people are to hold savings in the form of bank deposits. And so the risk is that you end up hitting the very people you're trying to help. I mean, it, it's a really knotty policy problem. And if we look more globally, Simon, we saw that all the central banks, all the main central banks acted um, in concert to enhance mm. dollar liquidity right while this was happening. And SVB Bank UK was very neatly sold to HSBC for the price of one pound sterling. So I was wondering, also, given all the work done by the FSB over the past uh, decades or mm. so, how do you view the international cooperation that we've seen recently? And did you expect it to happen this way? Well, I was pleasantly surprised. I mean, I think it does go back to this point that, thanks to the FSB, the authorities have now had ten years of practice. You know, they've been they've been obliged to set up resolution colleges to think about the global banks. So the people in charge of resolution within the authorities are at least, at least they know who their opposite numbers are. They're used to having meetings with them. They're used to wargaming resolution and bank failure. So this is another area where there's an enormous difference from last time. There was that sort of experience of cooperation to draw upon. You knew who you were calling. You knew roughly what his position was on these things. And you could form a pretty good idea as to what the result was going to look like because you'd thought through similar problems collectively before. You know, nobody planned for this particular event or this particular series of events, but the planning that had been done turned out to be jolly useful when it came to dealing with them. If we now turn to Credit Suisse, which happened around the same time, but obviously over mm. Over in Switzerland, they also needed a liquidity backstop because of considerable mm. outflows of a client funds, but that failed. And so the Swiss government, the Swiss regulator FINMA, urged Credit Suisse and UBS to merge. And there was some surprise internationally in that transaction mm. that shareholders were favored ahead of bondholders, including holders of contingent convertible bonds. Mm. So if we look at the bail in hierarchy, which is something that you're quite an expert on. I was just wondering, how do you view the Swiss approach to this transaction and the response by FINMA? Well, it's one of these interesting things, isn't it, that Credit Suisse was not placed in resolution. If it had been placed in resolution, the outcome would have been entirely different. You know, what happened at Credit Suisse is it wasn't placed in resolution. And as a result of which, the individual bondholders were dealt with strictly according to the terms of the bonds which they held. 
But those bonds had never been constructed to work in this sort of context. I mean, it's a slightly difficult issue because when certainly cocos were being designed, it was in the context of this sort of rather apocalyptic scenario where people were saying, oh, well, you know, we assume that all of the equity is just gone. So in that context, what happens to the AT1? And you write the terms of the AT1 for that situation. That's not what happened here. So you had to look at the terms of the AT1 and say, what do these terms actually permit? Now, I'm reasonably confident that when these bonds were being drafted, if somebody had said to the draftsman, what do you think ought to happen in these particular set of facts, you probably wouldn't have had a bond drafted in quite the way that this bond was drafted. But, and this I think is the critical thing, because the terms of the bond appeared to permit the complete extinction of those bondholders, I don't think the Swiss government had any option but to do what the terms of the bond appeared to say that it could do. If it had behaved differently, you know, the the row about giving away taxpayers' money unnecessarily would have been horrendous. And, you know, all this is going to be litigated for an extended period of time. But I think all that the Credit Suisse experience really tells us is, first of all, any solvent solution is more appealing than a formal resolution. I can absolutely understand how it was that the Swiss authorities thought, you know, actually putting Credit Suisse into resolution has got to be the worst of the available options. And if we can do anything better than that, we will do. But there's a point, really, for the drafting of the terms of bank subordinated debt generally, that I think the draftsmen of those terms are going to have to be a little bit more imaginative in future about saying, if we don't get to a resolution, but we get to a solvent transaction, we need to think about what, how the terms of these instruments would work in that situation. And that is very hard. Yeah, you would also recommend reading the fine print in uh, term sheets. Oh, it's not the fine print. It was it was in very big letters at the top of the offer document, <laughs> you know, to be quite fair. But... Right. And it was also interesting, Simon, that the EU regulators came out quite quickly to say, you know, this sort of hierarchy, mm. this type of hierarchy wouldn't have happened in our jurisdiction. And they were obviously trying to preserve the confidence of AT1 bondholders mm. in the Eurozone and in the EU. So... To some extent, it's a Swiss exception, of course, because of the way that these uh, bonds were written. But is there anything more broader to say here, given that this was sort of the first SIFI to fall after the financial crisis? And we've done all this work on the FSB's Mm. key attributes of effective resolution regimes and banks have written living wills and issued internal TLAC and COCO. Is there something broader to say here or is it really just a one off? Well, I think this is just a one-off. I mean, what was very interesting about the EU's observations was what they actually said was these bonds would not have been treated this way in an EU resolution. That is a completely irrelevant piece of information in this context, because these bonds wouldn't have been treated in this way in a Swiss resolution. (laughs) 
the, the reason that this issue arose was because Credit Suisse was not placed in resolution and therefore you're outside the formal framework that resolution law in the EU and in, and in the US and in Switzerland provides. But the moral of that story is, again, that if an institution of this kind gets into trouble, it's actually far more likely to be dealt with on a solvent basis than it is to be dealt with through resolution. I mean, there is also the point that one of the dogs that didn't bark, I mean, there's a whole pack of dogs that haven't barked in the, in the context of this set of events. But one of them is that, you know, the market-wide collapse in confidence in AT1 bonds also didn't happen. There was a certain amount of turbulence, but there was no sort of infection across the market to the AT1s of other SIFIs. So, you know, it, it was all right. It could have been a lot worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to talk to you a bit now, Simon, about what are the likely policy uh, regulatory supervisory uh, repercussions of what's happened, right? Mm. So the U.S. authorities have been studying what's happened and try to identify shortcomings. Mm. The yep. Fed was quick to conclude that Silicon Valley Bank's board and management failed to manage their risks, right? So that could maybe lead to regulatory implications. But they also said that mm -hmm. Fed supervisors should have really been better to identify vulnerabilities and taken quicker steps. And and so and we know that the Financial Stability Board and the Basel Committee are also studying what's happening right now. Um, where do you see potential changes coming, Simon, at both the global standard level and maybe in some of the big jurisdictions, given what's happened? Well, I mean, the first point is this whole you know, were the supervisors too lax? Did they act too late? And all the rest of that. Now, the question that that raises, and this is actually quite a difficult question, is how deeply do you want the supervisors to get stuck into the micromanagement of individual institutions? Because without wishing to be unkind, some of the criticism of some of the Federal Reserve supervisors seemed to come from a place which assumed that it was up to the Fed to micromanage the risk management the risk management policies of an institution. Now, you know, it is clear that there was a lot going wrong in SVB, and nobody is suggesting that they're blameless. But a supervisor is there to supervise, not to run the bank. And I suspect there's a great deal of thought that's going to need to be put into how does the relationship between supervisors and banks actually work? How should it work when it comes to some relatively detailed policy questions? I mean, the other, I think the other big thing is that there is a lot of debate about whether if regulations had been written differently, this could have been either caught earlier or prevented. And that seems to revolve around two big topics. One of them is our old trend, interest rate risk in the banking book. And you know, at, at various times, various people have proposed a capital charge for IRRBB. But that takes you to the question of what, you know, what sort of risk is this? And the other big lump is to do with liquidity. And all bank failures almost by definition happen because the bank runs out of liquidity. So there's a slight knee-jerk reaction to say, oh, well, in that case, they should have held more liquidity. But the problem with that is we all know that once 
faith in a bank's credit has disappeared. There is no amount of liquidity that will save that bank. So the, the, the big thought is, if a bank is in trouble, is there a pool of liquidity which is sufficiently large that it would get it out of trouble? Because if there isn't, and it's perfectly possible there isn't, you know, I mean, you remember Bear Stearns last time around, is it the case that more capital would solve the problem? And it's perfectly possible that, there, that the answer to that is that if a bank is sufficiently badly managed, neither a greater capital requirement nor a greater liquidity requirement is going to keep it out of trouble. So it's this sort of, you know, the eternal triangle of bank regulation between capital regulation, liquidity regulation, and supervision. And all of those have to be revisited. But what what I think there absolutely isn't is a sort of clear policy recommendation that comes out of this these events that says, well, we should have been doing that and we weren't. It, it would be nice if we had that sort of answer, but we really don't. Yes, and it's also the case that SVB and First Republic are large regional banks, but they're not supervised and regulated at the yeah. same level as the Category 1 banks, as the very big global banks. And so there's differences there. And also... Yeah. Not having a CRO for nine months at SVB is also a factor. There were just a yes. lot of different factors that are not necessarily true across the sector. But I think what was also interesting across all the banks, including at CS, is how quickly deposits were pulled out. And so obviously technology allows for much quicker movement, more information. And so do you think, Simon, that deposits are less sticky than in the past? And what does that mean for bank funding strategies, given that banks do need to transform maturities to be able to turn deposits into longer-term loans? Hmm. It's really it, it, it's really interesting that because, you know, as I say, the current regulatory system is based on the idea that deposits held in connection with payment services are the most sticky form of funding there is. And if we start reflecting that in the system, then the danger is that you immediately start driving up um, you know, liquidity requirements. By the way, there is a terrifying catch-22 about this. Because if you start by saying, well, deposits clearly less sticky, therefore you have to hold more liquid assets in respect of your deposit funding, what you're doing there is requiring the bank to hold more governments. And it was precisely excessive holding of governments in an increasing interest rate environment that brought down SVB. So there is a slight frying pan and fire element to this, even if deposits are less sticky. And I entirely agree that I think what we've learned is that they're not nearly as sticky as we thought they were during the crisis anyway. That doesn't necessarily help you with the next question on the list, which is, well, even if they are, what do we do about it? You know, there, there, one or two folk have been floating around ideas about you could borrow notions from the regulation of money market funds and, and impose gating requirements or something like that. And, you know, you, you can't think of anything more likely to cause a deposit run than a suggestion that your deposit's going to be locked up for a month and you can't access it. So... <laughs> You can take 5% now, but 95% has to wait. You know? yeah. yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, what's also been, I think, a recent challenge is the whole idea of social media, you know, allowing for information mm. to be spread very quickly. Some of it, of course, 
misinformation. And, and we did hear commentators say that these were the first Twitter bank runs. And so I was wondering from a regulatory supervisory side, how should they be looking at social media now? And are there any things also that banks should be doing to try to stop this sort of yeah. uh, movement on social media? Yes, it's the Finfluencer debate wearing a different hat, isn't it? The difficulty, really, is that the idea of regulating somebody sending an email saying X bank is looking a bit dodgy does seem entirely fantastical. I mean, I think you put your finger on it when you say that, well, Twitter does facilitate the circulation of information. But, you know, as the water companies frequently say, the problem is it ain't all pure. Um, It is certainly possible, and there are laws in other areas that say if somebody is putting stuff out in the context of a particular financial service or product that is clearly and demonstrably false, then you can do something about that. But precisely how you would go about regulating people who are saying things which are either clearly true or arguably true is a really major problem. Well, let me ask you as a final question, Simon, are we looking forward here, looking at at technology and what's happening is obviously a lot of central banks are thinking about the digital currencies, about CBDCs, including Mm -hmm. a digital pound or maybe a digital euro. And they see a lot of benefits here in helping stabilize the financial system and anchoring public trust in money. Mm. But it could also be the case that if we're in a crisis again like this, that depositors could consider CBDCs to be risk free. So what does that mean for their deposits in the regulated banks? And and will this be a pro-cyclical concern? Well, I mean, this has been a major concern, actually, to be fair, for central banks for some time. Because if there's an easily available risk-free asset, then you can see the possibilities for massively destabilizing banks. I mean, that takes you to the much bigger question, which I don't think anybody has a clear answer to, which is what does a world that has both bank deposits and CBDCs existing side by side actually look like? Well, you know, you could say, well, we've had, we've got that already with bank deposits and cash. But the reality of the thing is that switching a million pounds out of a bank deposit and into cash is not something anybody's going to do. Whereas if you can switch out of a deposit into a CBDC at the flick of a button, then why wouldn't you? But again, that takes you to a bigger question of, from the customer's point of view, do I have both? You know, do I just have CBDCs, why would I want to hold CBDCs or a commercial bank? If CBDCs happen in size, and there is absolutely a discussion going on at the policy level at the moment as to whether that should be allowed to happen at all, and if so, what it should look like. But the commercial banking system is then going to have to respond to that. And if those two continue side by side, and I think they will, then the circumstances in which they interact and how easily and how quickly you can take money out of a bank deposit and into a CBDC is going to become a really important question. I mean, the central banks have been thinking about that to some extent, which is why there are these ideas floating around that says, oh, well, nobody can hold more than, you know, 20,000 whatever in CBDC or something like that. These are 
probably manipulable in a crisis. But this whole question of how do CBDCs and commercial bank deposits interact, I mean, I don't know, but I'm really looking forward to finding out. (laughs) Excellent, Simon. Well, thank you so much for all your sharp insights and discussion about global bank resolution topics and crisis management. And thank you again for joining me on this IAF Global Regulatory Update podcast. I also want to thank everyone for listening to this podcast and hope that you all stay safe and healthy. Please consider subscribing to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Simon, thank you once again, and I look forward to hopefully seeing you again soon in person. Bob, it's a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.